You are listening to The Think Tank, the unofficial NAFO podcast, brought to you by your best brain-damaged dogs and friends. Now please welcome your hosts, Matt, the TWAFO CEO, and Joe Place. Welcome to the Think Tank Series 2, Episode 2 of Series 2, Episode 12 in total. And today we are continuing the great Pingu coup. Uh, Me and Pingu are your hosts today, and we will later be joined by a rather interesting guest. The coup continues successfully, uh, at least for another few weeks. Uh, I've put more ERA on the tank. And well, how about we get this? Oh, I should have asked you. Uh, are we still looking for people to do the video and we the graphics? Okay, good. Uh, so we have we have a visual designer for images. We need a specifically a video person. Yeah. So if you want to put ERA on a tank, you can come and volunteer to be our video editor. Woo! You, we <laughs> offer you no money. We offer. You the hours are long, the pay is dreadful, <laughs> but you get to put era on our tank. No, actually, it's probably like if you're good at that, at making like quick videos, just simple things, you know, animating fellas or using stock footage. I'm sure you probably don't need that long. Uh, none of us are that good at it, so it takes ages for us to do this. Um, it, usually on a week, sometimes every two weeks, uh, depending on how recording goes. So on with the episode. So Pingu, so what has interested you this week? Yeah, so I think the big thing that uh, we have not talked about since last time is Twitter has now turned into X. And there's a lot of changes going on in the social media world. And it's quite interesting because while Twitter has definitively gotten more toxic and uh, there's a lot of people who said that they would leave twitter is still very much very active it is not a welcoming site however which leaves it a little bit ironic i the only reason i'm there is to support ukraine and i think as many people are uh, in nafo and extended circles is that the only reason we're there is to help fight the disinformation the misinformation that is just absolutely rampant on the platform right now yeah absolutely because a lot of people some people join threads but that isn't an option for most for those of us in europe because the eu will not permit it at this moment because of data concerns from what i understand uh blue sky is the one that quite a few people are going to there was also that Substack one um I don't know, I can't remember what that was even called. Blue it's Sky called seems Notes. To... Notes, yeah. Blue yeah, Sky notes. seems to be the one most people are talking about, but Blue Sky at the moment is quite limited. You can't just join. You need an invitation code um, from someone who has been using it a while. I just joined Blue Sky. I donated, and someone gave, I said whoever was first to donate. 
I would give a code. So I got the code. And it's interesting on there. So I will just explain how it is on there. It, it looks just like Twitter. It's re, it's they're not called tweets. They're called posts and reposts. There's no DM function. Um, you don't quite have lists at this point either. So, they're, they're, but they're, you can follow like groupings of people. Uh, it, so it seems similar. And um, there are a few other downsides. Like sometimes it can be a little slow. You click follow, it doesn't immediately follow. You have to do it a couple of times. But Twitter is super buggy. And I understand why they're limiting the intake at the moment is to make sure things work. They don't want to rush. Um, the plus side is where there are a lot of pluses. So, yeah, first of all, it looks just like Twitter because I tried that Mastodon thing. Oh, and that was just so complicated and so messy. I, I, I don't know. It, it, yeah, no. Nah. Um, but uh, it's generally Blue Sky is very easy to use. It's... Um, it's very clean interface. You've got a discover function, which is how you used to have on Twitter for like just things that are generally going on. There's likes by your friends. So it's kind of, it's not things who you are following, but what your friends are doing. And you've also got your, your following thread and you can like follow these other little groups. So I follow some Ukraine ones and things like that. There is, there are a few questionable people on there, but I, you have to really find them. They don't pop up anywhere near the same way. It's generally, I would say, Oh, it's, it's a lot calmer. It's a lot more friendly. The downside of it, from a point of view of NAFO at this point, is that it's less, less nonsense to bonk. And obviously, we all have much smaller follower counts. We don't have the big network just yet. So it is a little harder for us to find this thing. So I, at the moment, I'm seeing Blue Sky is a nice place to follow people and see what they're up to. Twitter is a battleground to fight disinformation, spread stuff to a wider audience so that help them help them learn. You know, so I like to try to educate people on what's going on. Uh, I haven't given any more threads on NAFO guidance because I feel I've said everything that needs to be said. But I try to share blogs and my thoughts on wider things so people can just be a little bit more educated and think about things. And I feel that at the moment Twitter is still where I need to be to do this until I don't know it collapses in hellfire. So I'm, I'm curious, it might change when Blue Sky does eventually open up. We may need to start considering reaching out and ensuring there is a, a NAFO presence elsewhere. No one cares about Facebook anymore. No one cares about Instagram. I've noticed this. No one has any real interest in doing anything there, which I get. Facebook is just terrible. Uh, Instagram is mostly images. Um, and I suppose there's other social media. TikTok is a big one. There's a lot of disinformation on there. But TikTok is so algorithm sensitive. If you already are opposed to Russia, you're not going to find disinformation very easily. And if you're pro-Ukraine, you're going to find out very quickly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I do think we need to start thinking about other social medias. We do need to be prepared. That is my thought. But I still think Twitter is crucial. We shouldn't all just hide because otherwise we are just completely going to allow disinformation to remain unchecked. Yeah, I don't know what your thoughts yeah. are. Yeah, no, I, I generally agree with you uh, with everything you said. So... I did not get a blue sky invite yet. And I'm not actually sure I'd like one. Um, I mean, if you have one and you want to give it to me, I'm not <laughs> going to say no, but I'm not actively looking for one. I, however, did join threads. Uh, this is a bit, I guess the first part is that you have to have an Instagram account to join. Mm. And I did not want to join threads with my personal Instagram that has like, a very close circle of friends following it. Um, so I created a fake one and for Pingu and I went over joint threads and 
it was actually it's a little bit fun because there is not too many people there. Uh, I know Matt was over there for a bit. There's some other NAFO and pro-Ukrainians that I followed. And it's generally more peaceful and it's a good area for like, you know, shit posting and just making ridiculous memes. But it was kind of an echo chamber because the biggest problem mm-hmm. with threads is that there is no way to just follow to just view the people that you follow when you scroll it integrates what's popular everywhere with the people that you subscribe to so it'd be like it's a lot it's a little bit like twitter now if you go over to the for you tab uh, on twitter it gives you who you're following but it intermixes that with a lot of the rubbish that goes mm-hmm. to the top there was a few people over there to bonk. Uh, there is George Galloway is over there. And among, I think RFK was over there. However, oh. I got banned. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I lasted all of four days, I think four or five days there. I noticed, uh, basically what happened was I noticed that there was a tweet about a footballer. I forget who, but he got, in trouble for illegal betting on football games. And I, it, it was not any account that I followed. Uh, I think it was from like Sky Sports or something. And I scrolled through their comments and I noticed immediately that there was a bunch of bots there who were giving, mm-hmm. who had like links to scam betting sites that were trying to imitate. It, it was obviously scam. And so I pointed this out. Um, and then like a day or two later, I start to get followed by those bots. So I took a screenshot and said, uh, the scammers have all arrived here too. And 20 minutes later, I get banned. And the only way to unban it is to take a picture of myself with my ID and a set of numbers that Instagram gives me. And uh, I'm not giving you a picture of myself, Mark Zuckerberg. I'm sorry. No. And I'm not giving you my ID. So um, my time on threads was short and sweet (laughs) and uh yeah that was my experience with threads but other than that i generally agree with you is that we should start thinking about um other platforms i'm on instagram a little bit more uh, than i think other people are it's quite popular here in taiwan i don't it's very follower driven though so like i follow a bunch of like big ukrainian media accounts among other people so like i never see anything pro-russian at all uh, it, it's very like, it's a little bit different. It's hard to prop. And I'm sure there's disinformation and misinformation, but it's quite, you have to be a power user or on it like six hours a day to see it, which does bring up the concern. And it is something that is actually mm-hmm. quite concerning here in Taiwan is TikTok. There's a lot of just really, really disturbing disinformation and misinformation on TikTok, and I'm going to sound like a grandpa here for a moment, but TikTok is just toxic and dangerous, and it mm-hmm. concerns me. Not even going into the backers and how closely <laughs> they are connected to the CCP, but that that aside, it is an extremely toxic platform. Um, that the only reason I even venture over there is to research is to research disinformation or misinformation. Um, yeah, it, um, it's very concerning. Yeah, because my wife uses it, and you know, she'll most of the stuff I hear, like you know, I'll catch what she's listening to, is 
most of it's normal, you know, but every now and again, there'll be like some weird conspiracy theory. And what I find is quite clever is about some of them is that if you aren't super familiar with the context, some of them can be quite, they can say things very matter of fact in a way that sounds very plausible. Right? And she'll be like, is any of this true? And I'll be like, that sounds like nonsense. And like, I'll Google it. It's like, yeah, it is. But I'm like, okay, but I'm quite good at researching things quite quickly. To a teenager, or perhaps someone who's not as media savvy as me, someone not as uh, who's in, whose language may not be English if this stuff's in English or whatever, who doesn't have the resources, I, I can see how people can get tricked. And, you know, a lot of the time, they use the classic tactic of making you question one thing and then another thing. And you've watched one video, even if you go, this is ridiculous, then they'll get, start giving you more like conspiracy theories and stuff. And you have to, it's, it's very dangerous. And... I think because you see people talking to you, 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 your brain processes it differently to if you're just like reading it because there's a human connection there. It's like how podcasts and other things where people hear their voices, fans can get really into it because it's, you, your brain in a way can't distinguish between someone in the room with you and someone you're hearing the voice of, right? That's uh, why people like get really attached with celebrities they've never met. And I think I think there is a danger to this. Um, and I don't want to be like, we should ban TikTok. I mean, maybe there's a case for that. I don't know. There's a lot, but there's a whole load of questions there about, you know, media freedom and things like that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what's to be done. I, I don't quite, I, I think there has to be, probably there probably could be something done. Um, but in a way, also the disinformation people need to also make an effort. There are disinformation videos I've seen, like my wife gets a lot about Ukraine, people debunking stuff. So, you know, that is good, I suppose. But you got to also think about what languages you're in, right? Uh, I hear stuff in English. I don't know what's going on in Spanish. I don't know what's going on in French, Russian, Ukrainian, uh, Mandarin, whatever. You have no idea how much disinformation is in these languages. Uh, there could be more or less. I don't know. It's quite bad in Mandarin because, so Mandarin is a little, Mandarin is technically the same in Taiwan and mm -hmm. mainland China, but some of the words are different. And of course the accent, there's a big difference. And it's, there is definitely, you can notice kids who spend a lot of time on TikTok because mainland China has, of course, there's a lot of people there. And there's also the bot farms there and they just produce mass content. And it's changing the way that kids are talking in Taiwan. And I sound like super grandpa right now, but it's very scary. The Mandarin language content on TikTok is very scary. And even aside from that, it's definitely creating these parasocial relationships. My cat has showed up again. Uh, he uh. agrees that Instagram is the superior platform for sharing cat videos. Um, yeah, okay. He yawned and he's walking away again. Uh, but yeah, the, the videos on TikTok are very, it, it very much drives you into this algorithm of you kind of get stuck in this uh, in a in a echo chamber of a particular bot farm in a particular um back at the very beginning when i joined nafo, NAFO uh there's this lad named andy corribico i don't know how to pronounce his last oh, name oh andy i can't remember how it's spelled Koporenko, Koribenko tended to be like he's american apparently but he's like ukrainian origin lives in moscow or something like this yeah yeah no he's from ohio he went to ohio state university he has a contract 
with CGTV in China. He writes for like a lot of disinformation and misinformation blogs. He's he kind of sucks at his job too, though. And uh, oh, he's very bad. And remember how basically the fellows basically boosted him and amplified him. And once we all decided, okay, we're gonna leave him alone, he just got more and more desperate and more ridiculous. And yeah, I don't even know what he's up to. He blocked all of us because. I, I can't remember why he blocked one of us. We did something. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So his strategy was, and this is why I bring him up, is his strategy was that if he replies to all these NAFO dogs talking to him, that he's going to boost himself into the wider algorithm. However, what he did was he boosted himself to NAFO people. So the algorithm said that NAFO people like Andy Andy likes NAFO people. So when I was able to do the network analysis, then it was just like a circle of NAFO dogs around Andy. And I bring that up because that's what TikTok does to people is that the algorithm sees that you like this kind of this content farm era, this content farm, because TikTok is, from what I understand, TikTok is very driven by people working together, collaborations, people kind of with the same, uh, contract not contracts is not the right word but that's kind of the idea the same uh agency uh, might be a better way to put it and so it pushes you into these circles surrounded by like these particular um these particular groups or these particular agencies um and it's quite concerning that it that will dramatically influence the way that you think uh, and the way that you interact with other people online and offline and what you believe is reality. Uh, it kind of goes back to the unreality machine that we talked about last week. But yeah, uh, that's that's my thoughts on TikTok. And you can decide if I sound too much like a grandpa or not. It's a fine line, isn't it, between uh, not sounding like a grandpa and not sounding like and making a valid concern about uh modern technologies and things like this i remember a few years ago i was in a facebook group called uh oh i don't remember it was something to do with um uh, it was like what if phones were too much and it was mocking like those sort of boomer cartoons about um phones like oh no phone bad and stuff like that and i popped back on it relatively recently and it was funny because everyone's like maybe phones are quite bad sometimes. And it was just very funny because a lot of us had this sort of discussion, like oh, maybe some things have gone a bit far. It, and yeah, I don't know. I think I just think there's, there's something to that. Um, with data scraping, basically the privacy. I mean, EU is doing quite a lot to protect uh, privacy. Like GDPR was one step in, the, I think, a good direction in some ways. I, some ways though, companies have always found ways around it. But uh, yeah, I am worried the data is one thing, but yeah, this um, this the fact we can all live in our own little media bubbles is still a, an issue and does shape your reality and it makes it very hard to determine truth. And this really plays into the hand of people like Russia, whose whole propaganda thing is to make you completely oblivious, unaware of, just unsure of what is true. That is more, that is very dangerous. I've said this many times and I will always repeat it because the goal is not to convince you of something, it's to make you doubt something i want to go back to x because i uh, know we haven't got lots of time for nothing did you see about how the sign the x sign was taken down off the building yeah uh wait oh the x sign was taken down uh no yes. i have not seen this yes yeah, so um it basically didn't 
pass like regulations so um oh. they had to take the whole sign down which um, is really funny yeah but okay good job musk just what kind of regulations did it violate? Did he did he put up like a big? It was fancy... glowing at night. Oh God! Um, oh. So and this is San Francisco, right? It's quite a regulated city. Yeah. Because uh, he breaks all the rules all the t- all the time, right? He's not he's not yeah, like yeah, um, yeah. he doesn't pay his staff. He doesn't do this or the other. But yeah, uh, I find it really funny. In terms of other news, I guess it's worth just talking about what else has happened. We've seen. Russia continuing more attacks on civilians, um, which we covered before. We have uh, they attacked some more grain silos. Talking about the grain, though, there was the incident with the boats going past the blockade, but they did seem to return. I'm not entirely sure what's going on there, but it is interesting they were just calling Russia's bluff, which I think is the correct response to do. And speaking of bluffs, uh, Wagner in Poland, um, which is very interesting because we have. Um, so Lukashenko made the joke about Wagner would go to Belarus, they really want uh, to Poland, sorry, they wanted to go, and then he said that was a joke. But then we had an incident of Belarusian helicopters, I don't think Wagner, uh, flying into Polish airspace. I'm also cautious, though, because Poland have been going, Oh, Wagner, we're gonna sneak in with illegal immigrants. It is an election year in Poland, the Polish government, you know, do have an interest in also making themselves like we will protect you, especially. PIS are quite right wing, but they're quite anti-migrant. We have to be careful what we hear from the Polish government. I don't think Wagner or Belarus are going to invade Poland. I think they are they they would absolutely fail. I think this is part of some larger distraction um, to basically make people's attention there, not necessarily on Russia's failures right now in the east. I don't know, and the south, sorry. Uh, well both. I don't know what your thoughts on this. Oh, and also, sorry, maybe it's distracting from the fact Moscow has just been bombed twice in the matter of 20 to 48 hours in the same building, in the exact offices <laughs> with drones, such precision. And like the office was like the, uh, they were like government offices, right? One was like a digital media uh, ministry office. And another one was uh, something else I can't remember. But yeah, I thought maybe they're also trying to distract people from the fact they can't even defend Moscow. Yeah, yeah. Uh- so I think that is the big news since we talked just a few days ago is the Wagner helicopters and Belarusian helicopters, whoever they were flying into Poland. Uh, that was just a few hours ago, I think, uh, from the time we're recording. And I am very cautious about it, too, because like we said last time, I don't think Wagner will attack Poland because they know that. I mean, they just cannot be that stupid. (laughs) Your cat has strong opinions on this too. (laughs) Yeah, he has very strong opinions on this as well. I'm sorry. Uh, But also, I I don't entirely trust. Now, I want to be careful about saying this because I think Poland has had moments of being a great ally to NATO and to Ukraine. But I also think that this is a good opportunity for Poland to both play up the the, P, the PIS to play up uh, their concerns for the elections. And also, this is a good point for Poland, who is probably one of the more aggressive states in NATO. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but this is a point for them to say, look at the propaganda coming from Wagner. We need to be prepared. 
so I actually don't think it will happen. And I think it's just both sides actually using this for their own advantage in the media. Um, I don't speak Polish and I'd be very curious to actually hear like domestically what is being said in Poland and uh, if they are like, if the military is trying to gain more support or gain, like if they're trying to get another budget, uh, you know, some extra money from the government. I'm not sure how Polish, uh, Polish bureaucracy exactly works with that regards, but that's, that's what I imagine going on. Cause I just cannot believe that a Wagner invasion of Poland would be, I don't see with the strategic goal of that. I don't get what that offers. Well- yeah, because either it was Belarus actively joining the war and probably and then really escalating the war, which neither Belarus nor Russia really wants because they would be destroyed, or Wagner goes on its own. And when they have faced NATO troops, they have been absolutely wiped, uh, like in Syria, right? Um, these aren't good at fighting in the same, you know, I don't know. Yeah, so... I do feel that, you know, Wagner wants to sort of show up something. Belarus wants to show something. Um, probably not great that helicopters could enter Polish airspace, but, you know, they also went back, right? It's not like some, I don't know. Um, and yeah, Poland, they denied they flew into airspace, which I found was interesting. But they, I do also think that, yeah, they have an interest too. They are planning on expanding the army, from what I understand. This can play into that. Um and I don't really, and again, like you, like you said, I don't want to diminish what the Polish government and the, what a lot of the Polish people have done with Ukraine. Um, but I also, I, I don't trust the government that much uh, for, for many reasons. Um, actually, I'll give you an example. So at the start of the war, a lot of people praising Poland for how many of them were taking in Ukrainians. But I had Polish friends in Krakow who were you know, doing this, getting people to houses, uh, doing stuff. And they were saying the government was just taking the credit for what just normal people were doing and not really helping that much. OK, they, they made it legal and stuff like this. They did the minimum. But, you know, really, it was the people of Poland who were really coming together and helping. And, yeah, um, politics of Poland is a very strange beast. Uh, which I'm not an expert on, but from what I, I yeah, I'm just a little sceptical of taking everything at face value. I mean, you should always be t- sceptical of taking anything at face value from any government, even Ukrainian government. You know, governments have agendas, and it doesn't mean it's bad, right? Like, <laughs> Ukraine has an interest yeah, yeah. in itself. Yes. It's just how the yes. world works. People have interests. Um, it's It's just meaning that when you listen to someone, just think, that maybe they have a reason to say this. Just that might not be obvious. Just, just be careful. Just don't switch off your brain because it's your side, so to speak. That's something I think quite a lot of people thought get wrong sometimes. Yes, yes. No, I entirely agree. And I think the only thing we can do with this situation is just uh, wait, wait, and see what happens. And uh, I don't think much will happen. But just, just pay attention. Um, our guests will be here soon, but first we have some pretty outrageous copium this week. Joe, do you want to go first? Yeah, our favorite red pill dating coach, failed writer, oh, filmmaker, Gonzaro Lira, um, <laughs> uh, who apparently, so just a little background to him, he is 
if you should go and read the uh, Vatnik Soup by a uh, former guest of our podcast and friend of NAFO, NAFO member and friend of our friend of the pod, um, um, he uh, Pe- Pekka, uh Vatnik Soups. He did one on Gonzalo Lira. Basically, this guy he was living in Kharkiv. Um, he was very much like the decadent, twisted West, and all. Oh, he, he he wanted to be a COVID expert, spreading nonsense, and then he became a Ukraine expert. He got in trouble for taking photos of military stuff or sharing information. Ratted out his co-collaborators, got kicked out of Ukraine, somehow snuck back in, and uh, it basically it was indicted, from what I understand, or summoned to the court uh, i forget the details on this uh, and has fled the country he said he was going to apply for asylum in hungary i don't know if anyone's heard from him yet uh, he put out this bizarre tweet saying if you haven't heard from me in 12 hours he's the kiev regime has got me uh because in his mind ukraine operates like russia and would disappear him for being an opponent whereas in reality i don't know they might arrest him because he probably shouldn't be leaving the country if he's got legal troubles but um yeah or maybe they'll just deport him again uh he's just uh, he just he can't live without that sense of constant validation he needs to everything he does is some sign of you know any opposition to him is a sign of conspiracy and how he's telling the truth maybe it's just because you are breaking the laws of the country you live in you spread propaganda against it and you're just a terrible human being um yeah and also he i just find it funny that he the man that looks like him and acted like him could be a dating coach it is not someone you should take advice off or in anything let alone dating um i i wonder does he even have a wife maybe i don't know <laughs> but yeah i wonder maybe he's in a prison maybe he is free in hungary i doubt he has grounds for asylum um i, I think in his even hungary probably don't care that much about him he probably has some romantic idea of them as an author i mean Orban's government is very weird but you know uh i can't imagine him you know I, i've traveled the route to hungary many times from ukraine i can't imagine him turning up and asking for asylum when the people there to help you on asylum because there are people on the border they said why are you why are you here like do the russians try to get you like no ukraine wanted me in prison because i broke the law uh, i mean like get fucked baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah oh, i just find it really funny uh, he, he just makes it out as a big thing um he's just a sniveling little coward yeah yeah he is he's uh so there's that one video when he got arrested in kharkiv and they took a video of his flat and it's absolutely you can smell it it's like Oh, it's disgusting. I don't think he's ever washed the toilet. Did his mom never teach him how to wash a toilet? No. Or is, like, how is this guy a dating coach? Like, well, first, his dating advice. Like, it's actually some of the worst, uh, most gross advice ever. Like, you're you're a horrible man if you listen to him. Uh, he's has. I I mean, I don't know what century he would fit in. Uh, like, he he doesn't belong in a century. His ideas are so twisted. But also his, yeah, his, his flat was disgusting. And it's like, yeah, I, I don't think you're exactly the person you think you are when you obviously 
you know, are chain smoke inside your flat. You never vacuum it. You never mop it. You never wash your toilet. And I'm picking on him specifically for this because I want to embarrass him. Um, and I want him to, you know, I, I want to much like, uh, Pekka's fat neck soup on him did is that he's a loser. And I don't feel bad for saying that because these are people who decided that they can make fun of Ukrainians dying and yeah. they can make fun of a culture, a, a, an attempt to wipe out a culture. And that's who these people are. And yeah. yeah. I have no idea where Gonzalo is, but I don't wish him well at all. No, no, no. Speaking of embarrassing people, I believe you want to embarrass someone else. Yeah, yeah, I got some. So today I'm recording this on the 2nd of August um, in the evening. So it's 2nd of August everywhere. After this, I have something special for Jackson Hinkle tomorrow because one of uh, he's just gotten absolutely gross lately. He's a horrible person. Um, and he continues to like double down on the anti-Semitism, the misogyny, the nationalism, the like, he's really trying to outdo himself. But there's this thread from Sarah. Well, it, it's been put into a thread uh, and we'll link it in the show notes, but it was an Instagram story, I believe, uh, from Sarah Brady, the former girlfriend of Jackson Hinkle. And there are screenshots and I'm just going to kind of go over this and uh, quickly describe some of the pictures because this is a podcast. You can't see what I'm looking at, but pull it up if you're not uh, driving or in listening or if you can pull up your phone. Uh, it'll, the link will be in the show notes. Uh, so Sarah Brady on her Instagram post, I dated at the dive with Jackson. Uh, it's his handle over three years ago, and he considered himself a Democrat socialist at the time ran for city in San Clemente at 18. Uh, they show a picture, and this is Jackson Hinkle and Sarah Brady. They look very like a normal American couple. Um, and then the next one, he asked me to take this picture, and it, a laughing emoji and a skull and bone emoji. And he has, something has happened to him. He is wearing a vest. He is wearing military pants, uh, like the fake military pants that says, End the military industrial complex, but it's in bright, bright yellow. His hair is stuck up and uh, he looks a little bit, it's a cringy photo. It's, but this isn't true. I like, I feel like there's a certain amount of Americans who kind of go through like this really, really radical social Democrat phase and like this tanky phase. I'm sorry, Americans who are listening. Um, it's not all of you, but I feel like there's kind of this wave in and out um, from people who, and friends in America that I've talked to. Um, and so after they broke up, he keeps on with this uh, Democrat socialist activist boy picks uh, in his feed. And uh, he's become such a bozo. And then he was very angry when our relationship ended and said he was going to therapy because of me. Now, this is at the same time we know that he started to interact with the Tulsi Gabbard campaign, and that is when he went really, really off the rails, and he started to kind of do this whole uh, very far left and far right. Like, he's the picture of the horseshoe theory. Right. Um, and 
see going on. I've got this article up uh, that you, about the, the screenshots. That photo is, oh, it's it's bad. It's cringy. It's uh, yeah, uh, yeah, dying from secondhand yeah. cringe. Yeah. Oh, that's right. And then the, this is the other one I was looking for. Uh, Jackson Hinkle calls himself a MAGA communist now yep. and associated himself with the Russian Orthodox Church. And this is the part that gets me is that he's not Eastern Orthodox. He is Russian Orthodox. And I hope that NAFO can push him so hard. And this is why I want you to continue pushing at him, NAFO. Please continue pushing him and irritating him. Um I want him to become a Russian Orthodox priest. I want him to bugger off to Russia and become a priest and fulfill his dreams and complete that therapy with the Russian Orthodox church. I know you can do it, buddy. You got it. in you, you can complete the dream. Do it. That is a perfect idea. Uh, There are questions how much we should engage with him or whether we should leave him alone. But if we can get him to be a Russian Orthodox priest, I think it could be worth it. I think we should have a quick pause and we will have an ad break here and then our guest should be on in three minutes if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that sounds good. Hello. Tonight will be another warm summer evening with cool drinks and starry skies for most of us. However, it will only be another night of missiles and perseverance for Ukrainians. You can make an immediate difference and help the expediting of Muscovites from Ukraine by donating tonight's drink money to Ukraine. A few quid or dollars at u24.gov.ua will go a long way to saving lives and ensuring a free Ukraine. Thank you, and now enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to the Think Tank, and today we have a very special guest that we are very, very thankful for joining us, Cormac Smith. Thank you very much, and welcome to the show. Bingo, you're very welcome. It's a, it's a real pleasure to uh, join you. So, would you just mind telling the audience who you are, what is your interest in Ukraine, just a little bit about yourself before we get going with some questions? Certainly. My name is Cormac Smith. Um, 60th trip around the sun or on my 65th, 61st trip around the sun, if that matters. Um, um, Seven years ago in 2016, as a senior British civil servant stroke diplomat, I went out to Kiev to be an embedded advisor in the area of strategic communication to the foreign minister of Ukraine. It was a guy called Pavlo Klimkin at the time. Um, I went out initially for six months, but stayed for two years after um, a very early request from the Minister Pavlo that I extend my time. My partner, who was back in the UK, you know, um, supported me to do this. Look, it's very simple. I tell the story. I fell in love with Ukraine within 24 hours. Um, and as I say, my age is relevant because I've been around the block a few times and it never. And I've traveled to a lot of countries. Um, nowhere has ever got under my skin the way Ukraine did. Um, having said that, I went there for a great professional experience. I got so much more. I made friends for life, but obviously as part of my professional preparation, I started an in-depth study of Russian disinformation and hybrid war um, tactics from kind of the middle of 2016 before I went out 
and got to really understand the um, the, the geopolitics and the, of the region and the history of Ukraine in particular. So really, it's quite simple. I fell in love with the country. I have I have several great great friends for life and many many wonderful acquaintances in um, Ukraine. When this, I've kept in touch ever since I came back from my posting in 2018. But when this horrible war um, broke out, I really um, wanted to do any little bit that I could to support the country and my friends in Ukraine. I had been in Kyiv the last time I was actually in country. I was in Kyiv in December 21. And um, a number of um, senior Ukrainian friends actually asked me if I would consider um, going on TV and radio um, to talk about, you know, to be a Ukraine commentator. Because as they said, they they believed that I understood and got them. So I came back to the UK. I'd never thought of doing this. And I started ringing around, doing what I used to do about 25 years ago as a, as a press officer at the beginning of my PR career. Um, I started ringing around journalists, taking journalists to lunch, taking journalists to pubs. And I got my first interview in probably the middle of January 22, about, two, about a month before the war started. And I have estimate I've done between 200 and 250 um, TV and radio interviews in several countries, mainly in the UK, um, over the last, let's say, 17, 18 months. And I do various other bits and pieces. I was out in Berlin, for example, um, a week and a half ago, um, working with my good friend, Alexei Mikheyev, who's Ukraine's ambassador to Berlin, um, doing some media training with his diplomats but also running a leadership conference for him and just working with the people and there's various other projects i won't bore listeners with a list of everything that i'm currently doing but basically i'm at a stage in my life where i can afford to do a lot of pro bono work um my my guiding principle is i will not take one hryvna of ukrainian money that can buy a bullet that can kill a Russian. If there's any government out there or a large corporate wants to sponsor me to be to enable me to do even more work for Ukraine, I'm very open for that. But my Ukrainian friends know that within reason, I will do anything for them that I can that they ask me to do. Uh, so that's my that, that's my honest interest in Ukraine. I think that aligns with us and probably most of uh, people that listen. Um, I'm curious, you said so you've had a lot of interviews in different countries, you go to different countries. Has anything struck you as majorly different when you've had interviews? What sort of things they focus on? Or is it mostly the same? Are there different underlying attitudes or even prejudices there? Well, the one area I've done several, I've done several African countries, um, including South Africa, including Egypt, um, and a number of others in the Far East. But in Africa in particular, it's very, very noticeable that the bias of the interviews tends to be very, very much Russia-orientated. And in fact, I have turned down several interviews recently because I just think I can do better things with my time because you end up with either being interviewed by somebody or being on a panel with a um, with a Kremlin useful idiot who literally is just amplifying the typical Kremlin lies, which are so ridiculous. You know, Ukraine is full of Nazis. Maidan was a US-backed coup. Um, the Kyiv regime has been carrying out genocide since 2014 on the Russian-speaking minority. 
the list goes on, doesn't yeah. it? So, you know, yeah. I've, I've, when I first started approaching the media, um, you know, I, I, I put a small profile of myself together with my Ukraine background. And I said to media people, look, I give you three things. I give you honest and pretty well-informed commentary, but it is honest. Um, because I don't believe in fighting disinformation with disinformation. And I've always, when I worked with Ukrainians, I said it's important that we, we Ukraine, has the moral high ground. Secondly, I set out to bust Russian lies. And I have a saying which myself and my minister, Pavlo, used a lot. Russia is the country that lies on an industrial scale. Um, you know, so I set out to bust lies. And third, I make no bones of the fact that I am not a I am not a neutral observer who will say on the one hand this, on the one hand that I am on Ukraine's side, but I'm on Ukraine's side truthfully, and that's what I aim to do. Mm. Yeah, I think because some people think we should, there's nothing wrong with spreading disinformation back, and I really am uncomfortable with that as a concept because first of all, the truth is on that is on Ukraine's side. And you don't want to be dragged down to that level. I feel then you you are losing legitimacy in the eyes of the public, really. Joe, can um, I comment on that? Can I make a comment, a quick comment on that? I had this, you know, when I was out there between 2016 and 2018, I kind of expanded what I was doing, and I ended up working with I think five or six other government ministries and three other cabinet members um, when I was out there, and I had many many conversations with good smart decent people who put forward look if you if russia is doing this we should do it back and i was always absolutely 100% clear no one we have to take the moral high ground um and um you know it's also about credit ukraine's credibility with our vital allies in the west you know ukraine must be seen as far as possible to be telling the truth. And as you say, the truth is on Ukraine's side. Now, um, a deception in the time of war. Well, you know, um, I, I remind people that during the Second World War, um, Britain practiced some fantastic deceptions to beat the Nazis. Every army practices deception in the time of war. That is completely different to the foul lies which the Kremlin takes. And I repeat, you know, Ukraine is full of Nazis. Maidan was a US Baku, etc., etc., etc. And these seem to to many of us, absolutely ridiculous. And I think we are winning the battle, but there are an awful lot of people out there, as you know, who still believe these narratives, as well as, of course, um, us being online a lot. We know that there's lots of useful idiots, tankies, and um, vatniks. I think that's the. I think that's the. Um, I think that's the unholy trinity, that. Um, that um, covers them all, but there are some other people that are just that are just not informed. Decent people who need to be exposed to the truth. So it's absolutely vital that Ukraine and us who are on Ukraine's side that we stick to the truth and we get the moral high ground. Yeah, I think so, I agree. Pingu, add something. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So with that in mind, you describing Russian disinformation, and there is a lot of people who don't get how Russian disinformation works. And so I'm in Taiwan. And previously before that, I don't think it's any secret Hong Kong. And the disinformation that we get here, and actually in Hong Kong and Taiwan is different because of the cultural context and the history with the two nations. Could you describe for our listeners uh, 
and just kind of a very, because I think a lot of our listeners and our audience will understand how Russian disinformation works. Can you break down how to explain that, though, maybe to friends or family members who don't necessarily understand how Russian disinformation works and why that might be different between the way it's targeted in the United Kingdom, Germany, and specifically Ukraine as well? Okay, to understand Russian disinformation, and all of this is out there in open source information, by the way. So anybody listening who wants to go and do a bit of research, I, you know, if if you if you start by googling Gerasimov doctrine or high Russian hybrid warfare strategy or Russian disinformation, any terms like that, you will come up with reams and reams and reams of um of stuff. One particular source who was one of my great sources when I started studying this was the British guy Peter Pomerantsev, um, who I would um you know who who I would commend to anybody who wants to really understand this. But look, um this is about hybrid warfare. And Russia has been waging hybrid warfare not just on Ukraine but on all of us in the West since 2014. And the and the particular model of of hybrid warfare that was launched was launched with the illegal annexation of Crimea and that's what I lead back into you know um General Gerasimov up to recently I can't remember whether he's been sacked again or not because these things happen so often but certainly recently the chief of the the, the chief of the general staff of the Russian armed forces was um credited with putting together this hybrid warfare strategy now the hybrid warfare strategy is using a mix of different tactics. It is interfering in elections, and we've all seen lots of that with the American elections, Brexit in Britain, the um, the, the referendum in the Netherlands in 2016 to prevent Ukraine getting um, 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 getting associate status to the European Union. The list goes on and on. So they interfere. They interfere with elections. They carry out cyber attacks. They will carry out um, uh, um, attacks and assassinations on foreign soil, as they tried to do in 2018 with Sergei Skripal in the UK in the um, 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 in the cathedral city of. I've gone blank. Remind me what it was. Salisbury, Salisbury. Um, and, you know, that th that's a good place for me just to branch off a moment, because I started working on the whole Skripal murder when I was in Ukraine and doing what I could to get the, the foreign ministry in particular aligned with the British government. And then I came back to the UK and I immediately joined the UK's um, 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 communications um Oh, the, 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 I'm sorry, I'm, I've just forgot about the name. It was a specific team set up to deal with disinformation based in the cabinet office. And I joined that as a deputy director of communications specifically to advise on Russian disinformation, which obviously with my previous year and a half in Ukraine, I had learned a lot about. And one of the things which we, one of the things which we noticed or which we found because the Foreign Office had a unit which was monitoring this. Russia obviously denied that they had tried to murder Skripal and his daughter, and they put out no less than 47 different narratives to muddy the water. Now, some of these were as ridiculous as Theresa May, the then British Prime Minister, did it. The CIA did it. MI5 did it. The mother-in-law did it. 
The most ridiculous I remember was it simply blew in on the wind from Porton Down, Porton Down being the chemical weapons um, research centre, which is very, very near to Salisbury. So, you know, the, the thing about Russian disinformation is they're not trying to sell a counter narrative to ours. They use what we what we have come to call a fire hose of falsehoods. Their, their objective is to muddy the waters to such a degree that nobody knows what to believe. Now, the other thing which they will do is they obviously recruit, and some of them they pay very highly, they obviously recruit useful idiots, and we can think of some in the media in the UK, we can certainly think of some on Fox News in the United States, who will simply parrot and amplify the Kremlin's lines. But it's, but it's important to notice they will do this with figures on the right on the far right and the far left, they don't care. All they want to do is sow discord and confusion among us. So we don't know what to believe. Um, and our true narrative, which is what we were talking about earlier on, um, fails to get traction. And the other thing, you know, this, so this is only this is only one of the elements of hybrid warfare, but it is probably one of the most important. They obviously also use agent provocateur in various countries to stir up trouble and to stir up riots. And I've, you know, I've mentioned the um, cyber attacks, I've mentioned interfering in elections and all of that sort of thing. Disinformation, or as I say, industrial scale lying is probably one of the most consistent elements to the hybrid warfare mix. And I would go as far as saying there has never been a war in history as this one, Russia's further invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, where the information space has been so critical and so contended. And the final thing that I think I would say, because I could talk about this all day, but the final thing I think I will say on this is we have got to remember that since 2014, actually it goes back further than that, you know, Ru Russia Today, now called RT, was launched in 2005, I believe, to, you know, start spreading their, um, 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 their propaganda and their lies in various countries around the world. And it's interesting to um, think, and again, my memory is going to fail me, but what do Russia today say? What is their strap line? It's to think differently. It's not quite that, but it's, I'm, I'm sure, Joe, you know. But that's what, I've forgotten, but yeah. Well, come back to it later when you get it. But basically, that's what they're saying. They're asking us to, ah, don't accept the, don't accept what your mainstream media is telling you. Think differently. And RT, it's very easy to see, will recruit um, you know, useful idiots from the right and the left and pay them significant amount of money. The final thing I wanted to say is Russia has invested literally billions of dollars into channels like RT, into websites like Sputnik, into also they have, you know, massive troll factories located outside St. Petersburg and Moscow, which Prigozhin, I believe, is very, very involved in. And these are just employing thousands of poisonous little keyboard jockeys to drip their poison and their lies across the internet. It's very interesting. I note um, whenever I do an interview, and if it's posted, sometimes the channel that I will um, do um, will post it, um, 
they know what to follow and I will get attacked by a huge number of these idiots. And I get, you know, similar attacks, although that not, not as much when I simply post my own stuff, because I obviously don't have a, as high a profile as LBC or talk television or the BBC or whoever I happen to be talking to. So I hope that gives you a picture. But as I say, you know, Google two or three terms, Gorasimov doctrine, Russian hybrid warfare, Russian disinformation. And if there's one person above all else that I would commend to listeners to um, and, and to read up on, it's Peter Pomerantsev, absolutely superb guy who lived in Russia for many, many years and ran a media company there and has a superb understanding of the way um, the current Kremlin um, kleptocratic regime under Putin works. That was a really good answer. Uh, so you mentioned, though, about how, you know, RT started way before um, and the war in Ukraine specifically started in 2014. Do you think that Britain or the West in general, to be honest, how, how, what did we get wrong in your view? This can be about disinformation or it can be a bigger picture. Uh, it's just in your view, you know, you were, you were involved with government. You, From your perspective, how, what did we get wrong? Was it, and what did we get right as well? Right. Well, what we got wrong, I'll start, what we got wrong is easy, cowardice and appeasement. You know, and um, again, I'm often surprised the amount of people have not heard of the Budapest Memorandum from 1994. Right. In 1994, Ukraine gave up the third largest nuclear arsenal on Earth. In return for this, they received security guarantees um, guaranteeing their territorial integrity. And that Budapest Memorandum was originally signed up to by the United States, the United Kingdom, and Russia. And it was later signed up to by China and France. Now, in 2014, when, you know, the first, the, the first actual annexation of, um, of a sovereign European nation since 1945, when Russia illegally annexed Crimea and invaded Donbass, although, of course, they kept telling us that they weren't in Donbass, that it was a civil war. Another great lie that they tell, Donbass was a civil war. Donbass was never a civil war. Um, we should have done something. We should have done something then. In fact, we probably should have done something. Take the probably out. We should have done something in 2008 when Georgia, when South Ossetia, was invaded and, and, and people were murdered and atrocities were carried out. Um, Obama at the time and I'm afraid his vice president, um, Joe Biden, were exceptionally weak, missed that, did not get it. You know, it's the, um, um, and the great British statesman and war leader Winston Churchill once said about appeasers, they're the ones who feed crocodiles, hoping that they will be eaten last. So, you know, we really let the Ukrainians down. They felt they had a piece of paper that they could rely on. We let them down completely in 2014. And of course, when you deal with a bully, when you back down from a bully, he doesn't say, ah, oh, I'll leave him alone. He's a nice, you know, he's a nice, gentle guy. When you deal with a bully and you back down, lots of us know this from various times in our lives, it's a red rag to a bull. They will attack you. The only time a bully backs off is when you show them strength. And you know, everybody, long, long before I got involved in the in the diplomatic business and my Ukraine work, and to this day, people far wiser and more experienced than me will tell you, Russia is a country that understands and respects 
only strength. So that's what we got wrong. We came to the game far too late. Even when I was out there, we were, the Ukrainians were looking for armaments from the United States. The United States gave them javelins, but they had to keep the javelins 300 miles behind the front line. And there was a complex approval system before they could take them out of storage and actually use them. So, you know, we did get involved um, and Britain, you know, more than anybody, I was in Berlin 10 days ago talking to five hardened military guys and war veterans. And they were very, very clear to me, Cormac, Britain is our best friend. Actually, their biggest concern was who's going to replace Ben Wallace, who was the um, Britain's defense secretary who has announced he is stepping down. Because despite Ben saying some funny things a few weeks ago about Ukrainian gratitude, these guys didn't care about that. These guys, senior military guys, including the military attache, they were clear that Britain was the best friend, that people like Ben Wallace and Boris Johnson um, were their best friends, you know, pound for pound. In terms of also what my Ukrainian friends have told me, it's not just the weapons which Britain has provided, but it's the influence that Britain has exercised behind the scenes to marshal other countries and get other countries on side. One final thing of that, famously, one of the first weapon systems that Britain provided, started providing to the Ukrainians, I think as early as December 21, was the NLAW. And this is a lightweight um, 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 shoulder-mounted anti-tank system, weighs only 12 and a half kilos, can knock out a T-70, T-80 or T-90 at up to a at up to a thousand meters. And if it wasn't for the hundreds, if not thousands of NLAWs that we provided Ukraine, Kyiv probably would have fallen. Because if you look at the statistics from day one, Russia was losing tanks by the by the hundred basically. Um, and so that's what we got wrong. We did too little too late and we're still getting it wrong. You know, the Ukrainians have been trying out for three critical heavy weapon systems for well over a year. They are modern fighter jets, F-16s. They are modern battle tanks. Mainly, they want the German Leopard. And they are long-range artillery. And mainly, they want Attackums and others. Now, again, the Brits have led the charge because in as early as February this year, we provided 14 challengers, which may have played a major part in unblocking the logjam and convincing the um, Germans to relent on the export license so both Germany and other countries who had leopards um, across Europe could provide them to Ukraine. Britain again began to unlock the logjam with the provision of um, Storm Shadow cruise missiles which have a range of 250 kilometers. Why is this significant? Because up to then, the longest range they had was HIMARS with a maximum range of 80 kilometers. And my God, the Ukrainians have made some fantastic use of those HIMARS. But now they're in a counteroffensive. And now Crimea is coming into play, and it must, and it will. Forget about the people who say, you, you know, they can't take back Crimea, because I lived among these people for two years. They will never give up on Crimea, and Crimea is the critical arena of this war, because as long as Russia holds Crimea, Ukraine will never be safe or secure, um, and their economy will never be viable, because holding Crimea, Russia will control the vital Black Sea ports as they are trying to block at the moment. So, you know, we're still getting it wrong. We've, you know, we've started giving them the battle tanks, although I was told recently they're still getting in place far too slow. 
Um, we have they have been using the storm shadow, but we still need to give them more long range artillery and more ammunition. You know, remember what Zelensky said on day two when the Americans offered to get him and his family out. He said, I don't need a ride. I need ammo. Well, they still need ammo. They're still they're still firing only for every three shells. The Russians fire. The Ukrainians can only fire one because they don't have the stocks. They're having to really conserve their supplies. I heard recently, and this is beyond depressing. Um, when I say recently, I mean yesterday. Um, the um, training program for pilots to fly the F-16s, which were approved over a month ago, has not even begun yet. And you know they are trying to, to they are trying to prosecute a counteroffensive without air cover, without air superiority. I would just like to remind listeners, 1944, a lesson from history, D-Day, when the Allies had overwhelming air superiority, they owned the skies. D-Day, tens of thousands lost their lives, and 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 there was a year's bloody fighting to go still before the war was won. So we're now asking the Ukrainians, or the Ukrainians are asking themselves, to attack very well-built um, defensive positions and extremely deep minefields um, without air cover. When, you know, the Russians have air cover at a rate of 10 to 1 at the moment. Um, so, you know, and that counteroffensive is progressing and they're making ground, but it's progressing very, very slowly because Ukraine has a different attitude to its people than Russia. Russia has no compunction, never has throughout history, in throwing tens of thousands of its own people into the meat grinder. The Ukrainians, as you know, Joe, you've lived there for four years, you're married to a Ukrainian, the Ukrainians care about their people. And one of, you know, listening to um, General Valery Zaluzny being interviewed about a month ago, you know, he's making it very, very clear. This is slow. You know, we're losing our we're losing our we're losing our best people. So many people are telling me that, but they want to save as many lives as they can. So, you know, the counteroffensive is is going well, but it's you know, it's going slowly. So to recap on your question, I think I've told you what we got wrong. Initially, we did nothing. We sat on our hands. And that was not just appeasement. That was cowardice and, and very bad judgment. And we are still, we are still too slow. Although we've done an awful lot, we're not doing enough. And, you know, there are even some people that think that maybe elements in the West, elements in the White House and other allies are actually afraid to defeat Russia. Russia must be defeated and must be defeated absolutely. And we've got to face down there probably over 100 nuclear threats that have been made and all the other threats of escalation that have been made since the start of the war because they don't, they don't respect diplomacy or appeasement. They break every single agreement that has ever been made with them and ever will be made with them. Um, you know, we need to face them with strength and with, I'm afraid, more strength than we are doing at the moment. I hope that answers your question. It's fairly long-winded. No, no, that answers the question well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a great answer. So with that in mind, with the scope of the UK being a very, very important ally, and uh, one interesting thing that I have not heard elsewhere is that 
the United Kingdom seems to be pushing along other allied nations of Ukraine to continue giving them support. With that in mind, what would you say short-term looking at and short-term specifically about Crimea and taking Crimea back? And then long-term, what do you think the defensive relationship between Ukraine and the United Kingdom should and could be? Well, look, I'm clear on this, but I'm just one observer. But I mean, I'm, you know, I have since 2016, my objective was to see the world through Ukrainian eyes. And I've been saying since 2016 that, you know, in the West, we need to see Russia in particular and the world through Ukrainian eyes. It's called empathy. And we don't have enough of it for the Ukrainians. So, um, you know, two things we need to do. We need to we need to stop the dilly dallying and we need to arm Ukraine now to the teeth. I started saying in January 22, a month before the war, I was saying two things. Arm Ukraine to the teeth, sanction Russia back to the Stone Age. We still haven't armed them to the teeth and we still haven't sanctioned Russia back to the Stone Age. We could do these things. We're not doing them out of fear, out of appeasement and out of, I'm afraid to say, with some countries um, 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 we don't want to hurt ourselves. We don't want to hurt our own economies because sanctions hurt both sides. So we need to really hurry up on the armaments because every day we delay causes Ukrainian blood. Oleksiy Reznikov is the um, Minister of Defense of Ukraine. And I always remember, and I very often quote, I'm going to quote him again. Oleksiy went on CNN around 22nd of, um, of December. I don't know Alexei, but he's a very good friend of a very good friend. And he said on CNN, we don't want to expect your boots on the ground. Just give us the weapons we need. We'll do our own fighting. My God, would the world not see how Ukraine fights? So, you know, so that's the first part of the answer. I get emotional when I talk about this. The second part of the answer is, you know, a, um, um, a free Ukraine back to 1991 borders must be taken into NATO. I was quite frustrated at the last NATO summit in Vilnius that there wasn't a clearer path laid out. But I understand that, that, that Ukraine cannot be brought into NATO while there's an ongoing war. But Ukraine needs to be told, right, as soon as this war is over, within so many months, you will be brought into NATO and they need to be brought into the EU. Because let's be very clear, the great Russian lie I spoke about at the start, oh, it was NATO expansion caused the Russian invasion. No, it wasn't. Because if Ukraine was a member of NATO, Russia would never have dared to invade. What happened last year when little Finland, a country the same size as Ireland, that's the Republic of Ireland, by the way, not even the whole island of Ireland, about five million people, five and a half million people. What happened when Finland joined NATO? Did Russia attack? No, they withdrew their forces. They withdrew some forces from the, and and Finland has, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, a 1,200 kilometer border with Russia. Russia withdrew forces from the Finnish border to redeploy them to Ukraine. And they will treat Sweden the same. And they will treat every NATO. Very interesting. There's there's threats about the Svalky Corridor and what and Wagner might do out of Belarus at the moment. And that'll be interesting to watch. But um, I would imagine that the Poles would say, don't trigger Article 5. We want this fun for ourselves. But that's, I'm being slightly lighthearted about it. But, you know, so that's the, you know, that's in a, in a, in a, in a nutshell, the reconstruction of Ukraine, I was at parts of the 
of the Ukraine Reconstruction Conference in London last month. And the cost of reconstructing Ukraine has been put at between 500 billion and a trillion dollars. It's not enough just to reconstruct Ukraine. And Ukraine is a sleeping giant, Joe. You know that. The, 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 mm-hmm. the capacity Ukraine has for, um, for economic prosperity, but also Ukrainians are a people like none on earth who understand, really understand freedom. They understand the price of freedom and they've proven they're willing to pay it. Most of us in the West have forgotten that. Our grandfathers, um, you know, fought against fascism in the Great War, in, in, in the Second World War. So, yeah, very, very simply, we need to arm Ukraine. We need to, you know, uh, we need to enable Ukraine to win this war sooner rather than later, because the later it is, the more Ukrainian lives are lost. And we then need to bring um, Ukraine into the NATO and EU fold um, toot suite. That's a really good point. I appreciate our time is running. So we've got a couple of questions left. Um, this is a little bit of a departure from the topic at hand, but it is something that, you know, is quite horrific in terms of what Russia is doing. And, you know, that's the kidnapping of Russia, of the Ukrainian children. Um, what do you think we can do specifically? We, Ukrainian, anyone can do specifically about that. Um, I just repeat the answer to my last question. You know, the most recent figures, according to Russia themselves, 700,000 Ukrainian children have been forcibly removed from the group and placed with another group. I use that language because it is one of the five tests in the United Nations um, definition of genocide. And Russia, from day one, has been passing unequivocally all five tests in the United Nations Convention on Genocide. And people don't realize this enough. Genocide is being carried out in a European country in 2023. The last count, and every time I look, it's gone up. The last count, the Ukrainian prosecutor general, with the um, support of the international community, is currently investigating over 82,000 war crimes. And we know that they are some of the most horrendous sexual violence, um, murder, torture, um, um, you know, the list goes on and on. The sort of the sort of atrocities that were revealed to the world when Bucha and other towns north of Kiev were liberated after the battle for Kiev was won. And every single settlement that the Ukrainian armed forces liberate, they find the exact same systematic pattern of atrocities that were found in Bucha and Irpin and Hostomel and those other places around Kiev back in back in the spring of 2022. So what can we do? You know, Putin is already an indicted war criminal on the basis, and it's specifically on the basis of the of the forced removal of Ukrainian children. And when we had, I can't remember the stupid woman's um official title but she's the um she's the kremlin's she's the kremlin's um um, um special envoy on on children's rights Le, or something Levolva, like, whatever her name yes is. Yeah, something yeah. ridiculous like that and she came out with a statement a couple of days ago and she they actually they have confirmed this is russia this is not ukraine not the united states intelligence russia has confirmed seven hundred thousand. so you know it's a huge war crime um, yeah, I mean, the simple answer was would be bring Putin to the Hague now. 
Um, but we've got to win the war first. So as I said, um, same answer as the last question, arm Ukraine to the teeth, do it now, do it quick, um, win the war and then bring Ukraine into the fold fully. Couldn't agree more. Pingu, last question for you. Yeah, last question before we wrap up here is just to kind of take a more general scope on democracy and the protection of liberty globally. Uh, And kind of on the back of that last question is, Joe and I are academics. You do academic stuff as well. And I've had to listen to people who have told me that they would rather see an immediate stop to the war right now with the current borders And they will say that that is in the face of the war crimes that we have all witnessed, is that peace is more important than facing justice. And I think these are what we'd all describe as the useful idiots. First, what is the threat of these useful idiots in very professional positions and institutions? And what is your response to them? And what do we do about this propaganda that has in some institutions in academia and government bureaucracies has just become unfortunately the norm to talk about this in this way to, in my view, it's both to uh, some from a skewed ideology, but also just because they want to return to comfort and peace and ignore the horrific tragedies that are happening. What, 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 what is the danger of these people and how would you respond to them? Firstly, they're very, very dangerous because we live in democracies and they have a voice. And unfortunately, as, as you have said, some of them are academics or government people and they're influencing governments. They have a powerful and influential voice. So they're very, very dangerous. Um, you know, they, um, they're absolutely wrong. Because we talked about the 82,000 war crimes and what the um, Ukrainian armed forces uncover in every settlement that they um, that they have liberated, um, there is there is an area of Ukraine I think almost equal to the size of Great Britain still under um, Russian occupation. So to um, freeze the conflict now is um, is um, is leaving the population in that area at the mercy of the atrocities that we know the Russians are carried out, carrying out. That is simply not acceptable for Ukraine, and it shouldn't be acceptable for any of us in the decent civilized world. The second point is Russia, Putin, the Kremlin, is desperate for a ceasefire. They are being very badly beaten on the battlefield. According to the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, they have had close on a quarter of a million soldiers killed. Multiply that by two or three and you're up to a million casualties. Now, some Western estimates um, put the figure at lower fog of war. Let's just say, you know, they are I think it's we can be pretty clear. This war is going very, very bad for Russia. They are losing the war. They are desperate for a ceasefire so they can so they can rebuild their forces. And we know there will be a ceasefire. What then negotiations? What then negotiations where we have an agreement, where we have an agreement like every other agreement in history that Russia has made with Ukraine or pertaining to Ukraine, Russia will break when it suits it in a year's time, in five years time or 10 years time, and they will come back for more. Um, A very good, a very, very good Ukrainian friend of me 
of mine told me back in 2016 when I first went out to Kiev. He's since become a very good friend. I just met him at the time. He said, Cormac, Russia wants Ukraine without Ukrainians. I didn't quite believe him at the time. I do now. I know the truth of that now. Um, you know, the reason for this invasion is very, very simple. It's twofold. One, it is the greatest, a, you know, there is no greater threat to a successful, peaceful, democratic Ukraine or Russia than a peaceful, than a peaceful successful um, Ukraine on its doorstep. And the second reason, you know, Ukraine was the jewel in the crown of the Soviet Union. The USSR was 15 Soviet Socialist Republics. Ukraine was one of those. Ukraine was accounted for about 40% of the GDP of the entire Soviet Union and the industrial output. The other thing is, we talk about the Soviet army when we thought it was formidable, something that a lot of people don't know. And I made friends with a man who was a, who was a colonel in the Soviet army who fought in Afghanistan. And the same man is a great you know, Ukrainian patriot and stood on the Maidan in his 70s with his wife. And, you know, the Ukrainians were the core, were the backbone of the Soviet army as well. So, you know, they want Ukraine back for the wealth that the land contains. They have made it very clear in, th in words and deeds that they intend to wipe out any Ukrainians, um, especially the leaders and the intelligentsia and 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 so on who they see as um who they see as opposing them um so you know it's really simple as that i mean negotiations are not an option for ukraine unfortunately i fear that there are capitals in the west where um there still is considerable pressure for negotiations and i've got to say i'm very very worried about the white house at the moment because as i said Biden, a year late, relented on the F-16s. They still don't have them. They still won't give them attackums. Um, you know, we heard some news in a, about track 1.5 negotiations recently um, with former U.S. diplomats suggesting that there should be negotiations soon. This absolutely, I, 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 I implore people to be clear that negotiations are just out of the question because it will it will condemn millions and millions of Ukrainians to the sort of abuse that was uncovered in Bucha and has been uncovered everywhere else since. Russia will simply use it as a opportunity to catch their breath and rebuild back their forces and they will come again. We've got to see this. And the final thing I'd say, if I can say one more thing is, you know, we've been talking really about the moral reasons why we must support Ukraine. Quite simply, the fact that genocide is being carried out in a European country in 2023. You know, if that's not enough reason to, you know, to fight, then what is? But, you know, I would say to anyone out there, even if, even if you don't care, and there are people that don't care, because they just want their own life and they want their fuel prices back down and the cost of living and everything else. Even if you don't care, this wolf will come to your door. Believe me, because Russia is again intent with her allies, China being one of them, with the destruction of our rules-based international order. 
And if anyone doesn't know what our rules-based international order is, it is basically the um, international system that came out of the rubble of World War II in 1945. And yes, you can point to all sorts of, you can point to Afghanistan and Iraq and all sorts of areas where arguably we've got it wrong and very, very wrong. We've not been perfect and our leaders and our countries have made many mistakes, but it is still responsible for the greatest period of peace and prosperity and security that the world has ever known. So you've got a choice. You've got a choice for a continued and rejuvenated, and maybe we can learn from our mistakes and make it better, rules-based international order led by the United States, by Britain, by the European Union, by other countries in the Pacific Rim, like South Korea and Japan and Australia and New Zealand, and the list goes on. Or you can have a what, um, what Sergei Lavrov called in 2017 at the Munich Security Conference when he celebrated what he saw as the coming asunder of the rules-based order, and he talked about the rise of the post-West era. So you can have what we have at the moment and we can all learn from our mistakes and fix it and make it better. Or you can have a post-West era where actually Russia will be the junior partner to China. And we already know that North Korea, Iran, Belarus, Syria are in Russia's pocket. And we see the malign influence that Russia continues to exert on the continent of Africa at the moment. And we see, and we see the and we see the leanings of, of Brazil and India and these other major countries who are on the fence or leaning towards Russia. So there's, you know, there's an awful lot more at stake in Ukraine than just Ukraine. For me and for you, Joe, and, 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 and Pingo, for you, I know what's at stake in Ukraine is more than enough to keep fighting, and it should be for most people. But if it's not, look to your own self-interest. I think that's a really good point to finish up on. The last question is simply, where can people find you? And do you have any uh, organizations that you think people should donate to? Because we're always keen on donate um, where people should send their money to help Ukraine. Right. The so the, Look, there is so many, and I didn't prepare for this. So one that pops into my mind is Lifeline Ukraine. Lifeline Ukraine was founded by a friend of mine, Paul Nyland, a few years ago as the first ever suicide helpline in Ukraine. It was founded initially to focus on the massive problem of PTSD from the um, guys and girls who were fighting on the front since 2014. I was talking to Paul recently. His um, The number of calls that himself and his team take has increased fourfold since this war went on. You know, PTSD and, and, and trauma. And I speak to lots of people across Ukraine for different um, projects that I'm working on is a huge, huge issue. Yes, the Ukrainians are tough. Yes, they're brave. But you know what? They're not superhuman. They're human like all of us. And they feel pain and they feel fear and they come apart at the seams. So, you know, I can't, I'm always very, very careful about, um, there are others, but I'd need to go through my notes. But you know what? Lifeline Ukraine, Google it. You'll find it run by a great guy called Paul Nyland, um, doing fantastic work that is absolutely still you know, we've had the Samaritans in the UK for many, many years, still the only suicide um, helpline that Ukraine has and needed more now than 
needed more now than ever. Or the other thing is just give your money to the Ukrainian armed forces. I wear this that I'm very, very proud of. It's a piece of the last steel produced in the Azov style steel and iron works. And when I was out in Berlin talking to the military guys that they were all wearing these, they said, where did you get that? They're almost impossible to get now. And they're very, very mm-hmm. expensive. And I said it was a birth. It was a 60th birthday present from a very good Ukrainian friend who told me he made a very significant financial contribution to the Ukrainian armed forces. So, you know, as I said at the beginning of this, um, nearly everything with the odd, you know, with the odd appearance fee that I get from media companies, everything I do currently for um, Ukraine is free. I won't take a hryvna of Ukrainian money that can that can buy a bullet to kill a Russian. I don't care how that sounds. And where can people find you? Um, I suppose you could start with my huh, Twitter. I'm still I'm still hanging in with Twitter or X. It's at Cormac S sixty three. That's at C-O-R-M-A-C, capital S for Smith, 63 for the year of my birth. As simple as that. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm on Facebook and I'm on, um, and I'm on, um, uh, I'm on um, what is it, LinkedIn as well. But, you know, um, Twitter is where I really focus on my Ukrainian work. And if people are interested in, you know, I'm not the most um, dynamic person. I try and post maybe once a day or twice a day something of interest, but I, you know, use it for my um, to to create my network, if you like. But if somebody, as you did only a few days ago, or as Matt did for this interview, um, you know, if good people reach out to me, they'll get a good response. If bad people reach out to me, they'll get my block finger. Um, but I give everybody one chance. So yeah, and I mean that 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 that's where you can and if and if somebody follows me and sends me a message and says, Hi Cormac, I was, you know, listening to you. Can you please follow me back? I'd like to DM you. And then if it's something of genuine interest, we take it from there with email addresses and WhatsApp phone numbers and so forth. But I'm, you know, I'm as you'll see from my from my um, um, from my profile, I'm very very open about who I am and where I am. Thank you very much for joining us today. That is pretty much everything we had. In was mind. it okay for you? That was great. Yeah, yeah, okay? yeah, that's that's fantastic. Thank you very much.